art made my engineering and my business career better. Unquestionably. It's about ways of thinking. It's about what lens are you using? And then for me, it's also not just about art. It's about a culturally specific or an art rooted in a culturally specific way, right? So there is unquestionably a cultural influence on all of this for me as well. Well, good afternoon, good morning, good afternoon, good evening, good night, wherever you are in the world. Welcome back to brand new edition of Social Convos. And Diego, the time changes are catching up to me a little. So how is it going with you? What do you mean with time changes exactly? I know because we, we don't really yeah. have seasons here. It's, it's getting hot. That's the only thing I can tell you. It's getting a bit hot outside, but we don't really have the seasonal changes from season. winter and so spring and summer. So what time changes are you referring to? Okay, so for, for people that don't know, we re- always record social confos on Tuesday. So this is for the people that don't watch live, but actually watch or listen to the relays. And we either have time slots for people who are guests that are 4 p.m. local time or 9 p.m. local time. And the 4 p.m. local time is a little bit more challenging for me. As you can probably see, I'm still in the office. There are people still working around me here. So I'm a little bit more quiet than usual. And also my focus and preparation for the, for the social conflict is, is just different. So that's what I mean when I'm taking, talking about different time, different time sets. Then that's where I kind of get like, yeah, get a little bit confused. Well, don't worry about that. That's why we do this together. And to kick us off, actually, we're going to talk about the recenter the topic about culture again today. We've talked a lot about tech, we've talked a lot about marketing the last few weeks, but sometimes it's good to take a step back and look back to where we came from and what we, you know, what's underrated, what we need to cherish more before it gets forgotten. And to help us navigate this conversation, we're going to have another guest, another author from Minnesota, and she's going to tell us about what inspired her about her book, about her heritage, where she came from, and basically how we can create our own culture. So without further ado, I'd like to welcome to the stage Suchi Sairam. And Suchi is a Indian, Texan, Minnesotan, American, multicultural entrepreneur. We're going to unpack that in a second. And yeah, she's really excited to share about especially her culture. So Suchi, welcome to Social Convos. It's a pleasure to have you with us. Thank you so much. I'm so, so happy to be here with both of you and excited for our conversation, see where it takes us. Awesome. So can you unpack that yeah, intro really for us? <laughs> Indian, Texan, Minnesota, American. I know. Only specific states. And... Yeah, I think, I think there's, uh, and it's interesting because it kind of feeds back into culture because all of these things are different inputs to the culture I think I've created for my for myself. And so I fit in in a lot of places and nowhere in a lot of ways. But but I was born in India. I my my family is from South India and I when I was brought to the United States as a baby, I was just over a year old and I spent a lot of my formative years growing up in Texas. I went to college in in Massachusetts, came back to Texas for a while as a professional, worked and then have lived here in Minnesota for nearly 23 years. And so each of these places has been an important input for me. And, and I think that's why I like to own all of it. If you had to pick one thing from each of these places, what's the first thing that comes to mind from each of these four? Ah, yeah. I think Indian culture, there's a, there's a, there's a rich diversity to it. American culture, there's opportunity and freedom and you get a chance to to be who you want to be. And there's a there's an openness, there's a friendliness in the state that I grew up in. And and I think that there's for for me being a woman, a brown woman, I actually had a lot of what we call good old boys who were who were great mentors for me. And and so that's 
that's something that I found in that openness. And then in Minnesota, there's a lot of value on arts and culture and education and community. And so each of those, each of those things have been, have influenced me a lot. Okay. So if we, if we would rank like cultural importance for you, like, and, and this is personal preference. Mm-hmm. Like, so we have to clear that the people listening in or, or watching it, it's not the, that it has to be that way. But for you personally, if you would have music, food, and tradition, what, which one would you, which one gets you most excited about if you talk about different cultures? Music. Food is a really close second. It's a very <laughs> close second. It doesn't mean that tradition is unimportant at all, but, but there is something about cultural influence and in music that is so, it brings out the uniqueness in every single culture, but at the same time is so universal and can bring people together that it's, that's so beautiful. That's something that I really, really enjoy about culture. You mentioned Minnesota is what you got from there is more the art side. So growing up, were you always interested in art or was it more like the traditional? Because you, you went to very well-known college, MIT, university. So how was that growing up, the art versus the science and the engineering? Yeah, I, uh, I always had both in parallel. Uh, I happened to be interested in science and math growing up and academically. It was, that was an easy connection for me. But art was always in my family. Art was always around me. Music was always in our house. I'm, I'm a little unique and I'm, I'm one of the few dancers in my family, but music has been in my, in my family, on both sides of my family for many generations. And so, so that was always around and it's been with me for a very, very long time. I think what Minnesota brought for me is really how that artistic influence is around in the community. It was further than my family or in a very, very small sliver of community. It was much wider. And I think that's something that I really enjoy and appreciate about living here in Minnesota. And it's, it's interesting that you mentioned the freedom aspects of, of the U.S. as well. Because like that's also something you already mentioned that math was something that you were generally interested in. But how much pressure was there on did you ever feel pressured to do certain studies or how did you kind of balance between the interest in art and culture and the, the career, the often expected career culturally that you have to do a profession or do a study that's really something that's established? Right. Absolutely. Yeah. It's, it's very real. It's very, very real. And certainly my, my parents, when they immigrated, they came to the United States in the early 70s. And that generation of immigrants, it was very much a, my, my father was an engineer and then he became a, an entrepreneur, but it was engineering, science, being a physician, being an attorney, being an accountant, you know, one of these professions. And that was what was, I think that was what was known, that was known culturally, that was comfortable. There was opportunity when you came to the United States and you, and you had to do your work. But there is also comfort in, okay, if you choose one of these paths, it's a known path. There's something that is more predictable, so to speak. And I think that was the case when I was growing up in the 70s and 80s. It's completely different now. And I think generationally, it's different. My generation, perhaps we didn't feel the same freedom to deviate. But like, I personally didn't feel the need to deviate because I did love science and math and studying engineering was something I wanted to do. It wasn't something that I was forced to do. And art was encouraged and excelling in art was encouraged. If you're going to do it, do it well, do it properly. That's definitely something I grew up with. But art was never a career. Art was never going to be my career. For me personally, I guess I was okay with it because I did love engineering and I, I had a quote unquote career and art was going to be my passion always. What I never predicted, what I never planned for was that over many decades, literally, it's now, it's now become my career and my focus, but I don't regret my path for a second because all of my other professional experiences while I was 
had my art in my life have given me a way to kind of uniquely explore art and not just in one particular. So if you compare that or observe on how you were raised back then and also the generation now with kids, that encouragement, would you say you are in a unique position or is it that you also see many other families encourage their children to, you know, express and not force them in a certain direction? How have you seen that evolve over the generation? Yeah, I think I think it does continue to evolve. So, so much of it is family specific. I think it is what people are comfortable with and what they see other people doing. When I was growing up, this is what everybody did. And everybody chose a career in engineering, science, you know, the, the usual suspects. And so deviating would have been a humongous deal. Whereas staying this path wasn't a big deal because everybody was doing it. And, and it was okay. And like I said, for me, my parents didn't have to force me because I liked it. If I had not liked it, that would have maybe been a completely different conversation in my house, right? I have no idea what that path would have been. My brother was very similar. He also gravitated to science and engineering. He studied science and math. He studied engineering as well. So we never had that particular tension in our our family. What I see now, and there's also another factor I think that's very different is my parents' generation, when they immigrated, they were on the front end of immigration. And those that have immigrated later, you know, in my, like my, my dance students, their parents who have immigrated, if they are immigrants, they have come into a situation where there's already a lot of things in Indian American culture that are established. So there are places of like the, the weekend study classes, language classes and this organizations and cultural organizations. All of these things are now very well established. Whereas my parents' generation, they were the ones who established all of it. So I think that was, that's also just a, a different circumstance. And so getting back to your question about who's forcing what, I think there's also in this generation, they're more willing and able to express themselves and say, no, you know, I don't like engineering. I don't like science. I want to study journalism. I want to have an arts career. I want to do something that is not as mainstream as what would have been traditionally thought. And so I think those conversations are just happening more frequently now. And, and because of the dynamics, there's, there are more of this generation that are taking that path. It's interesting because the first generation, of course, they had to work the hardest to adapt. Like you said, the, the weekend classes, those kind of things, there was no structure in place. Right. And the second generation kind of benefited from the first, but also had a little bit more freedom to understand and, and also is also seen more as, as part of the regular society because they speak the language. And then you get the kind of the third generation now that really has the full range of freedom. But on the flip side of that is also a little bit of loss of culture. Like the first generation, of course, culturally, you bring all the culture with you. The second generation is kind of raised still with that culture. And then in the third generation, all of a sudden that culture sometimes disappears. So, so how important do you feel like it's for, for this third generation to still in some ways to be connected with the culture they, they, they inherited? I think it's immensely important. I think it's also really an interesting spread because on one hand, you're absolutely right. The, the likelihood of it diluting over a period of time increases with each generation, like you said. The other part of that is that because there's far more structure in place, there's actually a higher critical mass. And so there's, as, an, as a simple example, I'll just, I'll just compare my experience with my, my students now who are listening, the teenage, those teenage students. I have some students that are in their thirties and adults, but they also some little ones, but let's take to the teenagers. And for me, I was the only Indian kid in my school for a very, very long time. When I was in high school, my high school was 3000 students. And at any one time, there might've been three Indian kids. That's the most in the entire 3,000 student population, okay? Whereas now it's 
very often my my students will have almost completely Indian friends, both in school as well as in their out-of-school activities. And of course, they interact with non-Indian Indian kids too, but they gravitate to Indian kids. And in part because there's a critical mass that that wasn't in, that d- didn't exist when I was growing up. And so I think that's that's one thing. So as part of that, they're actually retaining culture, but in a, in a different manner, in a different way. So I think that's one part of it. The other part is that because all of these cultural organizations have in place, there's more opportunity actually for them to take advantage. And so I look at a lot of my young students, you know, like my my family's mother tongue is Tamil. And I can speak, I can speak Tamil. I never learned to read and write. And I'm now at, you know, nearly age 52 and finally learning to read and write Sanskrit. And and it's really hard at this point in your life, right? But my young students, they have been in Tamil school from the time they were five years old and they are completely fluent and and they can they speak to each other sometimes i hear them not just to their parents but their parents conversations are complete they're completely in their native tongue which isn't what necessarily i grew up with and so i think there's uh, on one hand there is definitely opportunity or the likelihood of it diluting and on the other hand there are these opportunities for it to really stay really to really stay in touch with it and keep a hold on it yeah i think the point of critical mass that you just mentioned is very relevant because as the generations go by because then these traditions these cultural activities become more scarce and then especially nowadays as you said when you were in school you could count on your fingers how many you know Indian people are people who are similar to you or within that the premises. And when you get enough people, the, the interest sparks again and they start to look for the source, the origin of it. But right. on the flip side, isn't always, as you mentioned, opportunities because over time, culture also evolves. Very- right. So how would you describe the the evolution of that, that heritage, that Indian culture, as you see in modern times now in modern society, how is it compared to like something from the 70s, 80s when, when you grew up and or what you learned about India? If you look at the overlaps and kind of nuanced differences that you would see. Sure. I think that uh, when I think about the culture connections when I was growing up, they were clearly, they were from our community. They were from within family. So it's whatever your family carried with you. It was from the community that you were around. People didn't get to go back and forth to India as frequently, unless you were very, very wealthy, right? You know, my family, we would, we would maybe go every three years. It was tremendously expensive. There, there weren't just many flights, you know, there's all of, all of that, right? Now it's it's very common for families to go once a year. The entire family will go once a year. It's it's just a it's a fundamental shift, right? It's it's neither here nor there, but it's just it's just a it's just a difference. So I think the the culture that we grew up with was primarily whatever everybody carried with them. And then what were the video inputs and the audio inputs? So it was cassette tape if we were lucky, right? And eventually VHS, that was a humongous deal. But now the access to video and audio is almost instantaneous. And so there's far more inputs that I think kids growing up now have access to, which I think keeps them in touch in a very different way than my generation did. We, we just had to work at it differently, I think. And, but the other thing is that when I look at Indian culture, a lot of times people just associate it with Bollywood. And I mean, because Bollywood is such a global, has such a global influence. And that is what a lot of people, people connect with. So, so that comes into play quite often as well. So what is typical Indian culture that people don't realize that is, is Indian culture? I think that there are so many festivals that happen 
And some of them are becoming more prominent. And I, I, this is actually, this is such a delightful thing that I see now is my students are able to talk about Diwali in their school. I mean, when I was in school, we would just go to, we would go to school. We, we would not talk about it being a holiday because it wasn't anybody else's holiday. So we would just have to, you know, go to school our regular day and then come home and celebrate and do whatever. Now it's, it's just a very, very different experience. They get to celebrate at school sometimes. And which I think is, it's fantastic. They can go to school in some traditional garb and not be looked at like they have three heads. And I think that is just so, so wonderful. But I think there's like Bollywood is, is Indian culture. They, you know, Indian restaurant food that typically is, is a, well, we, we will jokingly say it's a standard menu, but that ends up getting associated with Indian culture when in fact the food is just so, there's so much variety in the food regionally. And I think that's something that, that gets missed simply because certain things have, have bubbled up to the top in their pocket. So on, on the flip side, you mentioned Bollywood and I'd say Bollywood, especially the media industry has gotten a lot of input from outside as well, especially I'd say Hollywood, the Western world. So that is also an evolution of Indian culture to a modern time. So how do you see these cultures, different cultures taking over each other and kind of evolving? Like, will we have like one big culture over a few decades or like, how do you see this evolution of, you know, cultures across the globe? Kind of mingling. Absolutely. I think that that's, that's what's so interesting and beautiful. If I, if I look at my, my art form, Bharatanagyam, which is dance form from South India, and that's where its roots are. But it, it is truly a global art form. It is practiced around the globe, and it has been for decades. But the way in which we have to, to practice it and propagate it in the United States is different than how it has evolved in the UK which is different than how it has evolved in Malaysia, where there's a huge Indian population, which is different than how it's evolved in Singapore, different than how it's evolved in Australia. And, and each of these, and all from the same roots, all from the same roots, as, as if the form in India has been stagnant. No, that has also evolved as society and culture and things have progressed. Times have changed. And so I think that's, that's where tradition is a really funny word that, okay, what tradition and who? Tradition, it's, it might be things, it might be activities. Is it a moment in time? Is it a group of people? It's a group of people at a moment in time in a particular place, right? There's, there's all of these different layers to it. So, so sometimes when I hear from people that, oh, it's traditional Indian dance, I'm like, okay, which tradition? Which one? From where? And, and not to be insulting, of course, you know, but it's, but I think we have to, we have to be willing to say, what is tradition actually? And whose tradition is quote unquote right? And whose tradition is quote unquote real? And whose is quote unquote pure, right? There's all of these different layers to it that start getting really complicated. But can, can anyone say that? The way that Bharatanagdam is practiced in the UK, which it has been evolving there for decades, is any less than anywhere else or what we've evolved to in the United States. It would be silly for me to try and say, okay, we're going to practice Bharatanagdam without any inputs from American culture. I am, I am very American. Otherwise, it's got to be very distant as well, right? And, and irrelevant. Yeah. In, in the end, whatever we're practicing, whether it's art or it's books or food, whatever it is, it does need to be relevant. It needs to be relevant to the people that we're around. And I think that's, that's an important aspect we have to just keep in mind. But now from the other sides, right? So let's take an, an instance like Jalevi. I don't know if it is known as song by Jason Derulo. Derulo, yeah. right? And he comes out with a song and we're like, wait a minute, is he singing about jalebi jalebi? The jalebi that I, I take home and I eat. Yeah. And then, of course, it even becomes a TikTok thread because he uses his song to decide between different kind of cultures and different kind of food and which one he likes best. 
So the song gets even stuck in people's head more. But then most of the time, people don't even know what Jalebi is, right? right? So, and, and I mean, in, in Suriname, we, in, the pre, in the pre-discussion, we talked a little bit about Suriname and about the Indian food. And we have Jalebi here as well. My, lo- my, my wife loves it. My kids love it. My wife is Dutch. I'm Surinamese. So there's already, and she loves it more even than I do. But then you're kind of, not that you're catching me off guard, but then I start thinking, like, I don't know traditionally where Jalebi comes from. So, like, what role Jalebi plays in, in, in Indian food? So, could you enlighten us a little bit about, like, what it's, what, where Jalebi comes from and how it's celebrated or how it's used? Yeah, Jalebi is a North, it, it's typically from North India. My husband is a, a, an expert on, on sweets, and he would be able to pinpoint exactly which region it, it comes from. I am I'm not as much of an expert as he is, but it is from the northern part of India. And it is a, it's, it's made as a sweet, but some people will also have it with plain yogurt for breakfast too, depending on, you know, that's, that would, if he got that when he was growing up, it would be a super treat. You know, he'd be excited about that. But people will have it as part of, part of a meal, but also it's included in celebrations as well as, you know, especially like Divani where you're just gorging on all sorts of goodies. There's a lot of people gorging on jalebis. But it's, a, but it's an interesting segue into this idea of there's this very fine line between traditions and culture evolving, evolving with time, evolving with environment, evolving with people. And when does it become appropriation? When does it get hijacked into something completely different? I'll give a very simple example. I, I teach just just recently started teaching Bharatanatyam to some Montessori school students. And many of them are non-Indian and they didn't have any exposure to Indian dance prior. And there is a, a word in Sanskrit, swastika. Swastika means to cross. And so I showed them crossing their feet, crossing their hands. And I said, the, the, how we say cross is swastika. And one of them, their eyes just got really huge. And are you allowed to say that? And I said, I, I Europe, and that's a different meaning, right? Completely. Absolutely. And, but that was hijacked. It was completely hijacked. And even the symbol was actually, I mean, what, what it is, what it became. It's, 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 it's mirrored, right? Right. Mirrored, right. Yes. But who looks at that? Right. The first glance is it's actually a sign of auspiciousness in the original. We look at in original symbolism in Hindu tradition. It's actually a sign of auspiciousness. And, and the word literally means cross. And it was just a very, very simple example. This, this poor kid. And, but I actually felt it was the reason why I didn't avoid the word. And I, but I explained it was that I wanted to open this conversation. And to help them understand, yes, yeah, some things have been hijacked and the meaning has been hijacked. The, the intention has been hijacked. So let's take it back. Let's not forget that there is actually just a very, very simple meaning for it. Uh, it literally means to cross something. And actually, and I, I didn't talk about this with these students, but, but just like we spoke about, the original symbol was a symbol of auspiciousness. And so, you know, Clearly, Jalebi, this, this is a, on a completely different scale. No, no, no. I was going to go back to the dancing, but this was a very interesting because you don't think only when you said swastika, I was like, wait a minute. And then when you explained that somebody was like, are you allowed to say that word? Then I made the connection. And, and then it was like, whoa, yes. And, and we know, kind of know it because like I said, it's, it's mirrored. It's not the same. Absolutely. But, but it's, it's very similar. And of course, there's an origin story there where somebody hijacked it. So really, really interesting. But I do want to go back to the dancing because the dancing that you teach, where did the inspiration come from? And, and traditionally, where where you already said that the dance is, is also part from the song, but like, what's the what's the narrative behind the the dance as well? Sure, it's a it's actually a very very beautiful old tradition that actually has its own origin story that that is finally starting to be reckoned with now. We still have a long way to go. But the, the origin is, there's sculptural evidence going back many thousands of years. 
But this particular tradition originated in the temples of South India and Tamil Nadu, which is kind of at the southeast part of India. And Chennai is the largest city in the, the modern day. But it was an integral part of Bharatanatyam is the name of this form that it's called by today. It had a, a, a name for with hereditary artists. But it was an integral part of temple worship, actually, for many, many centuries. And it was passed on within hereditary families, the, the, the music as well as the dance. And these, these dancers were dedicated to the temples. And it was the, they actually had very, very high stature and a very important place in the community as, as far as the not just performing as a part of temple worship. They were held in very high esteem for their knowledge, for their skill, and for their, they generally had a, a wonderful worldview. You know, it wasn't just the art. They were able to connect art and literature and movement and, and human interactions and, and all of those types of things in society. And with colonialism, there really impacted that hereditary community negatively. Their art was kind of branded as impure. There are these really awful words that were, that were used because a lot of the poetry is, is very intense around love. And it was really around this idea of humans aspiring to be one with a divine energy. But the poets would imagine this through the love of a woman for, for a male god. And some of it is quite ex explicit poetry. And the way in which it was enacted was definitely not in line with Victorian times. And that, that really became an issue for yeah, colonial times. And so, so these, these hereditary artists were really negatively affected it was brought back in a quote-unquote scrubbed or cleaned up manner in the early 1900s, early to, you know, 1930s. And there's, there's a variety of different people that, that gave it a chance of, they, some people will call it revival, some people will call it renaissance, some people will call it thievery, right? And, and probably all of those things are true. You know, different aspects of all of those things are true. And so the way in which it has evolved and practiced since the early you know, 1930s or so, is kind of how you would see it today. It continues to evolve. It was originally a solo form and now has evolved into group work over many decades. It used to be solely a, a part of a religious practice. Now there is a, it's a, it's a far more universal language used as a universal language of communication. And so there's so many beautiful things about the art, but these hereditary artists had this art form taken from them. And so this is the reckoning that I was talking about now. Now there's far more advocacy. There's more, there are a lot of things that were done to damage all of those hereditary artists. Their, their livelihood and their life was taken from them. And so now at least there's conversation about this. And I hope that not not unlike not unlike the conversations that happen in many cultures around the world around slavery and the impact for generations afterward. And at some point we have to be willing to have a conversation about it and have a reckoning. Right. Yeah. In a way it's reaching or having some critical mass again to have that conversation yes. Yes. and basically resurface because back then, based on the context of the time. It gets interpreted differently or, as, as well, right? Very so much. That is language, because language, uh, the, the same words, the, depending on the context, have different meanings. So just as your previous example. And then you, going from dance and to transition to your book, it's called Dancing Deepa. So that, did your, how much did your upbringing and encouragement as an, a dancer as well have an impact on writing this book? And when did you start writing it? Where, where did the inspiration come from? Yeah, I, I had zero plan of writing a book ever. Some people have it on their bucket list and, and all of that. I never had any plan. I didn't consider myself a writer, none of that kind of stuff. And this was actually, it, it came out of a conversation with one of my adult students 
This was December of 2021, 2021, so not that long ago. And she was just lamenting that, you know, there, she had a three and a half, or her daughter was three and a half at the time. And she was just lamenting that there are no kid-friendly books about our art forms to, to share with her daughter. And I was like, oh, yeah, you're right. You know, because most of the texts are big research texts. They're translations. I mean, they're barely adult-friendly if you're not really into it, right? And so I just was kind of circulating in my mind end of the year through the holidays. And then I said, you know, I don't know anything about writing a book. I, I don't know how to do this, but I can learn. Why not me? You know, I, it's, it wasn't why me, but it was, well, why not me? I'm, I'm generally not afraid of a challenge, but I just needed the right guidance. And so, so through that process, I, I found, found some great guidance through self-publishing school at the time. And I think the first week of February, I finished my first draft. What was immensely helpful to me and actually critical, I would say, was that my students were an integral part of the book from the beginning. And so my, you know, Diego, you asked me about the aspiration. I just, I, it's not a, the book, the, the premise of the book is not about me. It's not about my students, but it's kind of a, a composite of different observations or experiences that I've seen from, from my early years, but, but what I see in my students. But this, this draft, all of my students heard it from the, the youngest ones to the adults, the teens, everybody. Every single age group had such important inputs for me. And the, the teens really talked to me about what was their truth and what would actually have been their experience. And the younger ones really talked to me about how they connected with the character. Was she real to them? Were the other characters real to them? And so with all of these, and, and the adults gave me inputs around what they thought their children would connect. And so with all of these different things, it really helped me tighten up the narrative of, of the story. And then at every single step along the way, my, especially the younger students, they were supervising every step that I took. They wanted to see every illustration. They had to approve my author bio. They had some very important inputs on how they thought the book should look. There's, there's some, some graphics in there that actually are taken from our studio. And they felt like, oh, that should show up in the book. So I think because of all those things, they feel like it's theirs. And I feel like it's theirs. It's ours together. And so then I was able to publish it the first week of June. So it went from rough draft to published in people's hands in four months, which was an incredible journey. I was so fortunate to have a great collaborator with illustrator Vidya Masudevan. She was just, not only did she do a beautiful job, but just a wonderful collaborator. So those things don't happen by magic. They happen because you have a lot of, a lot of people helping you and right along with you, alongside you on the journey. The main character is called Deepa. And you already mentioned it's basically the, the story, the premise is based on the input you got from the different generations, right? From the young ones to the teens to the adults. And did this kind of got embodied into a character in the story? And it's, it's, it's basically a, a bit contrary to how you grew up, but what to many are feeling like that expression of art form, creative expression and the sciences and that internal battle that's going on. So... How did you, I'd say, get the setting from India, having grown up in the U.S.? Like, where did that the inspiration and research come from to act accurately depict that? Yeah, I think that there were so many different directions I could take. I elected to take, to focus in on the direction of owning your culture, owning your identity. And so that's really the, the, the way I decided to focus that. And I think that actually has been a pretty universal experience when from my generation to following even my brother's generation and on and on. And now, and I see with my students, my, my students' generation, I think they're able to own it more than my generation was because they were Indian close to school. Nobody says anything. 
They can take Indian food to school and nobody says anything. I mean, I ate peanut butter and jelly sandwiches for 13 years going to school because, you know, you don't want to take anything that gets attention, right? That was Uh, the norm. (laughs) Yeah, right. You know, but so, so those things have evolved. But this idea of completely owning your culture, it's still hard. It's still really, really hard. And so that was, that was my primary motivation around that. So that, even though we culturally have our feet in two places, you know, we have, we're clearly in America and I'm talking about myself and my students, we're clearly in America, but we're also in India because we're carrying all these traditions with us. Owning that Indian part of your culture in a predominantly American setting is, is, you know, a little nerve wracking. And so that was really the motivation for, for the, the premise. I hope that answers your question. Yeah, 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 it does. Following up on that, uh, so what what do you hope that I'd say it's a children's book, and especially if 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 you have parents reading it or going through it with the kids, like you already mentioned, is is that ownership? Like, how would you want to see, or maybe in in a different way? Have you ever asked your students like how they define ownership of culture? It's it's actually it's it's fascinating you mentioned this. So many of my older students, you know, the ones that are in high school, the ones that are in their twenties, even ones that are in their thirties, they literally so Jeffrey, why didn't you write this when I was eight? You know, so they're they're so jealous of the ones that are eight or ten or twelve right now because they literally they experience that doubt. And even they got inspiration from owning their culture more at 18 or 17. And it was just because they saw it, they saw it in a book, they saw it in print. And it's not, it's no different than anything that we have talked about in class. For, I mean, so these are, these are students that have maybe learned from me for 10, 12 years, right? 15 years, but nothing different than what we have talked about. But it's very, very different seeing it somewhere else and seeing somebody else appreciate it and understand it. I think that that gave them it almost gave them permission to own it. And that's what I that's what I feel. That's why people will talk about I mean, people will talk about the word representation in a lot of different ways. But I mean, this is what it means is that you see yourself in a way that helps you own something. Right. That's. Because we're talking about ownership here. So does the fact, you mentioned print, does the fact that it's actually something physical that people see on a bookshelf or in, in the store, how much do you think that plays into that idea of ownership? Having I think physical- it matters. I think it matters simply because, as a simple example, when I have one of my, one of my young students who was 10, I think 10, and we donated a copy to her school. She saw it in her school library. She saw other kids in her class checking it out. And so it was, it wasn't, it was because it was a physical object. I think that helped. Now, some of these, along these lines, when they, let's say that they're doing a performance, and I will encourage them to invite their school friends, invite their school teachers, and some of them really hesitate. Oh, no, 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 I don't know if I want them to see. But when they do, it's not necessarily a physical object, but it is an experience, right? You know, so they shared an experience with these people and it completely changes the interactions that they have with people. I've had that experience when I've done a show and I've invited work colleagues and they'll come to the show. And afterward, I have heard on more than one occasion, you know what? I can't sit in a meeting with you and look at you the same way again. And it was in a very positive way because it's just, you have just introduced somebody to another side of you and an important input to who you are. And then they realize, okay, this is part of what's showing up when I'm in a negotiation with you or in a meeting with you or something like, right? And I think that that's, whether it is a physical object or an experience, that I think each of these things helps with getting back to ownership. Because if you can own that fully, 
and you can show up fully. But I think, isn't it also part of, of respect? And you already mentioned arts, arts and culture. And I think what's interesting, like a lot of, and this is my common concept, like my common perception in general, is that a lot of people in, in America, and, and I'm talking to America, not specifically the U.S., sure. they don't often realize that India is Asian culture. Like often when people talk about Asians, they, they don't regard Indians as, as Asians as easily as Chinese or Japanese or, or Taiwanese, for instance. So, and the interesting thing is that there are some similarities. And I think one of the similarities about the culture, Indian culture, but also Chinese culture and Asian culture in general, is there's a lot of respect. It's, it's a very respectful culture. So I was wondering how much that also impacts that when it comes to art and culture, like it's, it's seen as, I wouldn't use pristine or more, like when, it, when it's a, a show of art or a show of culture, when it's, when it's performed, especially dance, it's, it's seen very much from a respectful place because it comes across very elegantly. So I don't know if that also contributes to what you mentioned with cool workers all of a sudden seeing you in a different light. I think, I think that component is an incredibly important part of that. It's continued to evolve as well because some people will think that that is old fashioned and, but just respecting something is not old fashioned, right? You know, the way in which we convey it and show it, you know, what, what respect culturally means or, you know, when it, for what it means to me when it comes to this art form that I'm fortunate to to practice is that it's bigger than me. It's more important than me. It's more important than any of us people. It's just, it's something that you know, we're, we're trying to elevate it. We're not trying to elevate us. If we, which, which is kind of different from, from popular dance culture and, and a Western approach to, to dance and, and art as well. Very, very much so. And it's, it's not to say that that's fully practiced. That's the intention. That's, certainly what we're what we're taught and then the humans get involved and everybody has to has to take their own approach to it right but i respect also then can turn into this really funny thing it can, can become very hierarchical respect is also you know in the in the context of art and culture but elders you know it's uh, we we should there's a tendency yes you should respect elders and just listen to what they say whether they're in tune or not, whether they're, they're correct or not. So the, the hierarchy can get dangerous, but it doesn't mean that we should ever lose the respect for it. Right. So that's where there's this, there's this interesting cultural balance and generational balance that I think is happening as well. But, but I think there's, it's, it's also interesting about what is Eastern culture. I think just because it has been Western culture has defined Eastern culture as Chinese, Japanese. A lot of time, the Korean culture, right? It, it, a lot of times it doesn't even include the beautiful cultures of Southeast Asia, right? And there are so many rich, beautiful cultures. And if you look at that, that is a meeting ground of East Asian culture and South Asian culture. Because if you, if you look at Thailand and Malaysia, Cambodia, there is a real combination of influences from East Asia as well as South Asia. And so that is not, that's barely even acknowledged properly, which is a whole separate problem. And so I think that there's now at least a little bit more conversation about, okay, there's South Asian culture. And so at least it's getting delineated and recognized as things from Pakistan, India, Bangladesh, Bhutan. Sri Lanka are now at least highlighted as South Asian culture. It's really interesting to see how geographically culture spreads and the, especially when you look at the borders of countries that, that, that overlap, it happens so gradual. And if you don't pay attention and you just go with the flow and, you know, if you'd have a road trip, which is actually on my bucket list to do a, a you know, a trip to Southeast Asia there and, and experience all of that. It's quite extraordinary. And coming back to the beginning of our conversation, when you said, you know, you, you had that encouragement to 
express art and pursue your career or your studies in engineering, etc. What would you say to children or parents raising their children who struggle with that balance, who don't have that encouragement or kind of feel, you know, trapped? And yeah, well, what, what, what do you want them to get, get out of the book, but sure. also your general advice? Yeah, I think there is no question in, in my, my personal experience. I can, I can talk about my tiny sliver of the universe. Me having an interest and pursuing science, math, engineering, having that career eventually evolving into a business career and my art in parallel. Those things made my art better. Art made my engineering and my business career better. Unquestionably. It's about ways of thinking. It's about what lens are you using? And then for me, it's also not just about art. It's about a culturally specific or an art rooted in a culturally specific way, right? So there is unquestionably a cultural influence on all of this for me as well. And for anybody who thinks that they will be negatively impacted by having all of these things in your life, you're really missing out, you know? I really feel strongly about that. Pursuing art seriously doesn't mean that you have to... I think you know, when I was growing up, Becoming an artist meant you became a performing artist. And that was really the only path. And that was really uncomfortable for a lot of people because it's so uncertain, right? And there were only certain pathways at that time, especially. There were only certain pathways that were very narrow, very few opportunities. And so, oh, it was too hard. I think is actually that was the fear, right? Now, it's not that it's, it's, not that it's an easy path when you have to forge your own path. But there's far more avenues by which to pursue it. And I also don't feel that, you know, this point in time, you are pigeonholed into choosing one at the expense of something else. What is really important, though, is to understand, okay, what are your expectations? So if you have the expectations that you're going to be a famous performing artist and have a career as a physician, just, just as an example, just for discussion. I mean, there's still only 24 hours in a day. You still need to sleep. You still, right? I mean, there, what are your expectations, I think, then feed into how you pursue it? But there is space for all of it. And to, to leave one behind because you think it won't be practical or won't be of use professionally actually doesn't feed you as a person. And who's the person that you want to become? I love the way you put it, plain and simple. You're missing out. <laughs> <laughs> but manage your expectation. Suchi, it's, it's been wonderful. Just looking at the time real quick. Sean, look, do we have time for an over-under? No, we don't have time for over-under because I want to ask a question. All right. <laughs> first of all, what Suchi just mentioned is, is, is really interesting. And I think that I found a segue for it in my book as well. So I really... I really enjoyed your explanation, but you just mentioned like, yes, you can do a lot of, you can do too many things. Like one thing we all have in common is 24 hours in a day, but you did, you did do something exceptional with your, with your book that I do want to not only give you credit for, but want to hear you talk about your experience with it. Because one of the things you wanted to do with the book was actually get it in schools and get it in as many schools as possible. So you actually did a Kickstarter to, to get it in. So, and not only was it successful, it was really successful. So, and I'm taking this from a perspective of my mom, who also is working with the Ministry of Education to donate the books. And she didn't want to do a crowdfunding campaign. She, she did it the old style, the, the, the original old-fashioned way to kind of do the same thing as the crowdfunding, but actually ask companies or people to fund the book for different schools. But then again, that has its advantages, but having doing it through a crowdfunding process kind of not only gets people more involved, like more people that you don't know personally because the traditional route, you actually have to know and have to have the network. So I would really sh shortly to close off want to ask you to tell a little bit about your story on why you decided to do the crowdfunding, the Kickstarter campaign and how the experience was and also maybe at least one tip 
for people who are afraid to do it on how they can better prepare themselves if they want to go that route. Oh, sure. Absolutely. Yeah, it was to me, it was very important to have an opportunity to get books into schools because this was this was only for my students, but they were they were my primarily primary motivation. And I was just thinking, how do I make sure that there's a book in every single one of their schools? And then what about all the other little dancers that I know around? And wouldn't it be great if there's a book in each of their schools? And so that's that's kind of how I, I decided to go about it. The book was happening. So for some people, the Kickstarter is about, okay, help me make this project happen. And I just had a different approach in that I was making the book happen no matter what. This was kind of an add-on to it. And it was, so then I was really, tr truly able to take it from the standpoint of all of it was for giving. And all of it was for some some purpose beyond me. And it, it wasn't about me as an author. It was about a story being told with people that needed to hear it, right? Or that I, I, I thought, you know, I was selfish in that way. I thought, I thought they needed to hear it. And so they, the, the Kickstarter came about that way. And I, I'm fortunate in that I have a lot of professional experiences in my career. I know how to manage projects. I know how to, a pretty organized person. Um, I know how to get people engaged and schedule all of those things. That was a lot of work, but, but I was able to organize it in a way that, that worked for me. And I was very fortunate that it got a great response and, you know, almost 250 books were, were, were sponsored for schools, which was really fantastic. And I'd say that the tip that I would give people is think about something, a, a message that you can give that is beyond just you wanting to do the project. And that is a way in which people will actually get engaged with you. Because, and, and I, I still see a lot of beautiful Kickstarter projects, but so much of the messaging was around, I have a great project that I want to do. And it's not going to, that's untrue at all, but the idea of you contributing to do something better for somebody else, I think just has, it has a different feel. And I mean, it happened to work, work for me and, it's, and it, it worked for me personally in the sense that that was the approach that I wanted to take. And it was something that the supporters connected with. And so, so I would say that that, that would be one tip to just, just change your lens. Just change your lens on how to approach it. And then the other tip that I'll, I'll give is use, use the publicly available resources to help you plan your campaign out because there's a lot of people who have done a lot of stuff that are, it's very helpful resources. And then use your own talents. Like for me, I used my, my experiences to manage projects and I know enough about social media just to be dangerous. To, and, and use my network and use my network to to get the word out. And so utilize those publicly available things and then shape it with your talents and your resources. And just give it a go. You never know what's going to happen. No, that's a wonderful way to end it. And really appreciate you sharing that and going through that process. And also really cool to see, you know, that it's going to schools and having an impact there. And I like the mindset of chat. It's going to happen whether or not the Kickstarter is a go or not. The book is getting out there and this is just an add-on. Yes. So the, 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 the goal is already there. Whatever else comes is just abundance. It's just abundance, exactly. And, and I, I do understand that that may, may not be 100% reality for, for everyone. I, I was able to, to approach it that way. But I think that that can be built in in some manner. And, and be successful for people. Awesome. So to close off of Suchi, where can people learn more about you and learn more about the book? Where can they find it? Uh, right. Feel free to share and then we're going to close Absolutely. Off. You know, I'll share a couple of websites. So about the book is dancingbipa.com. And there it's listed some, some different different reviews. We're fortunate to have gotten a lot of great reviews for it and then have, have listed some links to places that that it is available 
online as well as at least and this this part I don't have as much information about international locations, but certainly in the United States, local bookstores are able to order it from their yeah and and get it into their store for you. But it's but it's available at the usual suspects online as well. And then me personally, stitchusidem.com is kind of just a place where you see just different things that I work, including my my dance and my art, as well as my work as a, an author and then other random, random things that I do. Awesome. We'll link this in the show notes as well. Great. John, look, any closing thoughts? And then I, I really out. want to thank Suchi for joining us in. It was, it was a pleasure. It was way too short. The hour passed so quickly. But we really want to thank you for, for being, being our guest, for everybody that tuned into the live show, but also those watching or listening to the rerun of this episode. Thank you for your support. And we will be back next week. Same place, same time. Bye-bye. Thank you so much. I had such a great time. Thank you. Awesome. Thank you.